Hey, good morning and welcome to the second Sunday of Advent. My name is Eric and I get to pastor down here and it is the Advent season and I'm so delighted and thankful that it is the Advent season. It's one of my favorite times of the year, as Ken and Sue mentioned, because it is about the preparation. This morning is our preparation candle in the Advent church calendar where we get to connect with other Christians, other church congregations and communities through space and time where for 2,000 years... The saints, the holy ones of God, the faithful, the children of God Most High have commemorated, contemplated, and celebrated what God did in Christ to send his son to redeem us from the curse of the law. So this morning we want to talk about preparations. It's already happened. I don't know if you happen to be driving around uh, this weekend, this past weekend. By the way, did you know that today's not the weekend? Just Christian, so that you know, today's the first day of the week. Today's the first day. The weekend ended on Saturday. This is the first day. This is how we start our week. The scriptures make it abundantly clear all throughout the New Testament, and they gathered together on the first day of the week. This sets the stage. This establishes our heart set, soul set, mindset, relationship sets for the week. We don't just coast in here on fumes hoping to survive. This is where we come face to face with the Spirit of God living in one another, and we are ready for what God brings to us for the rest of this week. But then there was yesterday, the weekend. And everybody's moving about, making preparations for one thing or another. I've mentioned this before, but it seems as though the most popular word to utter at Advent is busy. I've just got so much to do. And yet, the holiday season can also be a very, very difficult, draining time. Because it is the time, it is the season when many of us contemplate that we have lost those that we love and that it's not going to be a holiday season like we've had before. So I would be remiss if I didn't mention that just yesterday we lost one of our own. Buddy used to sit right back there against that wall named Saul Smith. Some of you guys maybe have known Saul. Saul's been with us since, gosh, more than a decade. And he was just one of our sweet, sweet dudes that Harold and Susan Collier sort of looked after. And Saul passed away yesterday. So this is going to be our first Christmas without him. And in the same way, many of you perhaps are dealing with an Advent season where you're having to consider, hey, there's going to be an empty seat at the table, or there's something that has changed relationally, or there's been some tragedy, or there's been some familial relational breakdown or whatever. And so I want to pray for us to prepare our hearts. Wait, haven't we already prayed enough? No, never. We're going to approach the throne of God's grace with confidence. So let's pray together. Father, we do thank you for who you are, for what you have done in Christ to redeem us to yourself and to one another. And yet, in the meantime, there is still pain. There is hurt. There is fear. There is uncertainty. There is doubt. There is grief. There is loss. And so you, Father, the God of all comfort, would you do precisely that? And would you prepare our hearts, our minds, our bodies, even our relationships to experience Emmanuel. We pray all these things in the power of your spirit and in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, we are in our second Sunday of our Advent sermon series, and we're calling it this year, Experiencing Emmanuel. 
what does it mean to receive and what does it mean to believe and to experience God with us? Or from Isaiah 7, 14 in the Old Testament, Emmanuel, the with us God. He's not just the uh, familiar with us God, not the aware of us God. He is the with us God. And all this Advent season, we want to look at a few different people through the gospel accounts and examine how did that particular individual experience Emmanuel. Last week, we opened up our series looking at King Herod. And when King Herod heard that there was a rightful, truly kingly king that had landed, His response was to refuse to bend the knee, but to instead go about a horrendous slaughter, trying to protect his own domain. And there are still those in our day and age that will not bend the knee, will not bow the head, will not surrender the soul to the kingship of Christ. And the end is always destruction for them and for everyone around them. This morning, We're going to look at a different character, and it's going to be quite an opposite encounter, we might say, all to reinforce our big idea for this morning and for the entire Advent sermon series. The big idea goes like this, God is with us. God is with us. So if you've got your Bibles, I want to invite you to turn to the Gospel of Luke chapter 1. Last week, we were in Matthew chapter 2. We're going to jump around a little bit. We're going to go to Luke chapter 1, and we're going to begin reading right in the middle of the chapter, in verse 26. This has historically for centuries upon centuries been called the Annunciation. This is dealing with Mary. Now, can I just say delicately and yet directly, the conservative Protestant evangelical church has, over the last few centuries, swung the pendulum too far away and to our neglect we have missed out on the wonder that is the person of Mary. And that's too bad. We have much to learn from this character. For thousands of years, this has been called the Annunciation. So we're told here in verse 26, in the sixth month, I don't like normally to just parachute right in the middle of a passage, so let me give you a little bit of quick context. In the sixth month, what's going on there? Well, At just the right time, God's going to send his son, born under law, born of a woman, to redeem the world. That's Galatians 4.4. There's already begun to be some things occurring. There's a priest in Jerusalem whose name is Zechariah. And Zechariah has a wife named Elizabeth, and they are old and they are barren. That is how they are known. They are Zechariah and Elizabeth, the barren ones, those who lack a lineage. And one day, as Zechariah is doing his work at the temple, at the table of incense, he's visited by Gabriel, the messenger angel of heaven. And he's told, Zechariah, we have heard you. You are known, and you are going to conceive, and you're going to have a child. And Zechariah says what you would probably say if I said that to you. You would say, and this is Hebrew, hamana, 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 what? How, how, uh, I don't even have a crib. Do you know how much diapers cost? Ah! And Gabriel says, that'll be about enough of that. And Zechariah does not speak for nine months. He's rendered mute because he questions. Sure enough, later on, Elizabeth does manage to conceive, perhaps possibly because Zechariah wasn't talking for nine months. I don't know. Text doesn't say that. I'm just, just throwing some helpful hints out there, fellas. I don't know. She hides herself away for five months because it's a little bit of a scandal, the fact that this older woman who is in 
marriage with an older priest that she somehow managed to conceive. And so she's sort of hidden away for five months. Verse 26, in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth. Now, you and I have probably been in church before, and we've probably heard Christmas messages or sermons before, but I don't want you to miss that Luke is a Gentile. He's a Greek. And so he's having to write and explain where Nazareth is because nobody knows. I mentioned this last week. They floss with ski rope in Nazareth, okay? It is the backwater. I just did a wedding yesterday in Gilmer. And as I was driving back from Gilmer, I mean, I could hear the banjo music on the clouds. And I thought, this is Nazareth. Hee-haw! That's Nazareth. And yet God sends an angel to Nazareth, and most of Luke's readers have no idea where this might even possibly be. So he explains it. In the Galilee, it's named Nazareth. To a virgin, this is a 14-year-old girl, maybe 13, possibly 15, but right around 14-year-old. The Lord God of heaven, the creator of the cosmos, dispatches an ambassador, an emissary, an agent of the heavens to the temple in Jerusalem? No. To the outskirts of Jerusalem, try again. To just the, the, the Sea of Galilee, no. To Naz- Nazareth, to the city square, to the market, no. To the peasant quarters of a 14-year-old girl. I invite you to pause this Advent season and think about the specificity and the precision of our omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent, sovereign God that he knows precisely when and where she lives and he loves her. And there's no less for you and me despite all the ways we might feel, despite all the things we might experience, God sends his angel to her, to a virgin, betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph. They are uh, married to be married or uh, they are essentially under contract. The fathers would work together. They would negotiate the bride price. And then the son would begin to build a room that would attach to his father's house. And when the room is finally ready, Joseph's father would say, you've done good work here. It's go time. And then the whole village would celebrate for about a week as he would parade down and process to her home and he would collect her and bring her back. They're married to be married, but they're not yet quite fully married. The point is, everybody in Nazareth, where it's a small town, everybody knows that Mary is off the market. They're just waiting for the party. His name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary, because every girl's name was Mary. It's like in the 1700s in North America, and his name was John Smith. Well, of course it was. Mariam is the sister of Moses, and so on an order of magnitude, the most popular name in all of Israel. If you were a little girl, chances are your name was Mariam, or what we say, Mary, and she was nobody. And she was nobody. She's nobody. And God loves her. This is the gospel. Verse 28, and he, the angel, came to her and said, greetings, O favored one. That, that shouldn't be there. That's a technical address. Kyra kikaratomene. If Caesar Augustus were to visit Israel, that is how Herod 
by Roman law would be required to greet Caesar. Kyrek, Ikaratomene, greetings, O favored one. This not eternal, but ageless, massive angelic being comes to the sticks somewhere between the Hatfields and the McCoys to this peasant girl's house, this 14-year-old girl, and he calls her most favored, most highly esteemed one. Now, that's astonishing. It's incredible to, to hear the thought processes of heaven. Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you already. God is with us. But she was greatly troubled. Mm, you think? This doesn't happen uh, ever. She was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern. She dialogozomai. She tried to figure this out. She tried to reason. Wait a second. Me? Huh? Here? Why? Now? It, none of it makes sense. But she's not questioning like Zechariah was questioning. Zechariah, well, he was actually servicing the Lord in the temple. And he was an educated, equipped, trained priest. He should have known better. This girl's 14. She's in the sticks. She's in Nazareth. And an angel's just visited her. And she's pinching her. like, is this really real? Is this happening? She was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, do not be afraid. Why would he say that? <laughs> because he can see that she's terrified. But we are not to tremble when God speaks to us in this way, because he has found favor and he is with us. The angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. One of my favorite things in my whole Bible is the white space after this period. You have found favor with God and the next word is not because. Nope. You have found favor with God and the answer as to why is because of who God is and what God is like. Oh, he, he has his reasons for loving you, but you aren't it. It's what he's like, don't you see? See, the most important thing about us is what we think and feel when we think and feel about our God. And he loves me. He's for me. He could not possibly be more so. And I need to be reminded of that. And that's what the Advent season allows us to do. And behold, verse 31 you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. Now then, as now, the parents get to name their children. Unless, of course, the child you bear predates you and is older than you by infinite eternal eons. <laughs> you don't get to name him. He's going to be named already. You're going to be the one that bears the person that is named God is our salvation. At just the right time, Paul says in Galatians 4, God sent his son, born under the law, all the restrictions, all the strictures, all the burdens, all the bondages of human existence in life, of conscience, of shame, of regret, born of a woman because she'll give birth to a human son. At just the right time when God's covenant community, the Messianic people are in bondage under the oppression of the Roman Empire at just the right time. Mary, 
the thing that you have been hoping for. For thousands of years, your people have been wondering about this Daniel 7 Messiah, the Son of Man. When's he going to come? Mary, it's happening because God said that it would, and it's happening through you. See, every little Jewish girl knew the stories from Old Testament. Who would be the one that would be Theotokos or Christotokos, the bearer of the Messiah? Gabriel's telling her, Mary, it's you. Why? Oh, because God's a good father. He originated the expression, because I said so. That's why. And behold, you will conceive in your room and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, Yeshua, Joshua. God is our salvation. And then Gabriel's going to say five things, five things that this child of hers is going to be. This is God's opinion. This is heaven's opinion. This is the Bible's portrayal of who Jesus is. So, so we all need to be reminded, we might have an image and an idea of what Jesus is, but Jesus is who the Bible says that he is. Not what pop culture or claymation say that Jesus is. The Bible says who Jesus is, and this is who he is. He will be great. In fact, he's going to redefine greatness. Who was great in that day and age? Well, Caesar. He had a palace. He had servants. He had opulence. He had, all of his dishes were gold. He was in Rome. He had armies at his command. Probably has a building at our hospital named after him. I don't know. Jesus is not going to have any of those things. He's not going to amass a fortune. He's only going to have about 11 friends, and they're all going to leave him. He's not going to have any building named after him. He's not going to have any retirement plan. But he's going to redefine what greatness is. He's going to go low, so very low, Mary. He will be great. Secondly, he will be called the Son of the Most High. This is the angel <laughs> who must have caught himself and said, he's, he's, he's God, Mary, in antiquity, when you say someone is the son of something, that is your way of saying they are the exact replica. They are of the same stuff and essence. And as Gabriel looks at this 14-year-old girl, he's saying, Mary, he is, he's God. You will bear actual divinity, the son of El Elyon, the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. From 2 Samuel 7, 18, every Jewish person, boy or girl, knew 2 Samuel 7 that there would be someone from the tribe of Judah in the line of David that will rule his people. Mary, Mary, the hope of Israel is coming, but it's not what you expected. He's going to need a diaper periodically, Mary. He will be the one who will rule in the line of David. Verse 33, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. Mary, the one you're bringing into existence is everlasting. There will be no midterms. There will be no coups. There will be no recounts. There will be none such things, no runoffs. God will install him and he will rule and he will reign forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. The universal reign of God in Christ in the world, Mary, starts now. Hear that? 
the longings of the human heart, or that somehow, somewhere, some way, someone will take all the broken, all the bad, all the hurt, all the harm, and will somehow set it to rights. Mary, it's coming through you. Now that's amazing. He'll reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I'm a virgin? Like I This this does not compute. Remember, she's 14. And the angel answered her, one of the most amazing Christologies in all of our Bible. The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you, and therefore the child will be born, will be called Holy, the Son of God. I need you for a moment to go with me on an Advent adventure. Sometime in ancient, ancient time immemorial, God said, let there be, and there was creation. But even before that, the best we can figure is that God, one by one, crafted each angelic being uniquely. They're not a species or a race that are just like humans. They're, they're unique. And one of them is named Gabriel. And so for who knows how many eons of billions of years, I don't know. But Gabriel has been on the front row watching the Father and the Son and the Spirit in what the church fathers would call perichoresis, as this circular, spherical dance of mutual interdwelling and perfect community and love forever. Mary says, how will this be? You have to imagine, what did this sound like from Gabriel? Well, Gabriel says, the the one that created me, Mary, is going to be born in you. And a third member of that Trinitarian Godhead is somehow mysteriously, I don't even understand it myself, Mary, but somehow the third member is going to overshadow you, going to come upon you, and, and he's going to make it so because the father, the first member of that Trinity, deems it, wants it so because of all of those rebellious, murdering, blaspheming, God-hating people that God loves. And Mary, you're going to be the instrument that brings him. Oh, you can't can't wait for you to meet him. I can't wait for you to see him. I can't wait for you to hold him and know that he's looking back up at you. Mary, this is you. Imagine the Trinitarianism that the angel Gabriel goes through as he announces the birth of Christ to this young girl. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son, and this is, she's in the sixth month w- with her, who was called barren. Her identity has been changed, do you see? For nothing will be impossible with God. Mary, just to encourage you, I set a sign in motion, God says, uh, six months earlier. Your cousin, Elizabeth, that's right, that cousin, yeah, she's pregnant. Verse 38, and Mary said, behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. I don't know how much scripture you memorize, if any. That's a good place to start and finish. When God speaks, wherever he speaks to you through his word, by his spirit, among the wise counsel of his people, if you and I would respond, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel 
departed from her. Now, we've got a little bit of a, of a gap in the narrative. We don't know exactly what happens. Perhaps after a short time, Mary begins to show. I don't know. Perhaps her father sends her away to, to save faith. We don't know exactly what happens. But Mary's going to take the 90-mile journey from Nazareth in the north all the way down to whatever little village suburb of Jerusalem Zechariah and his wife lived. So we pick up in verse 39. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country, into a town in Judah. Not exactly Jerusalem, but it would have been right there connected, possibly Bethlehem. We don't know. We're not told. And, the entered, and she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. <laughs> because Zechariah's going, <laughs> and when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leapt in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. You know why she says that? Because it's true. The, the unmerited, unearned favor of God upon this girl. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me. What a beautiful expression. Elizabeth understands that Messiah just entered her house. Oh, in utero, prenatal, he's Messiah. Why do I get to enjoy and experience this? Short answer, because God says so, because he's good. Verse 44, for behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leapt for joy, and blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. And Mary said, now, I don't know about you. I don't know what your favorite song is. I have this vision this sort of allowing my mind to whir as I'm trying to fall asleep at night or if I'm on a long drive. There are some things I would like to see and enjoy and experience when the veil of this life, of this world is finally pulled back. Some people I want to see, some things I want to experience. I want to just hang with Jesus. But then after I'm finally like able to pull myself away from him. I want to hear this song. Now the text isn't completely clear. It says that she said, but the idea is that it's rhythmic, it's poetic. Perhaps it's the quivering voice of a 14-year-old girl. I'm not going to exegete this. Just want you to go there. Just be in this little house. House of Zechariah, as this 14-year-old girl just gets confirmation that she's bearing Messiah. What would that sound like? My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. Wow. She begins to understand the gravity and the enormity. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, who is not mighty. And holy is his name. 
Holy, holy, holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. See, she's just doing wonderful theology of praise. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. It's one of my favorite verses in this song. Is Mary saying that no one's ever going to go hungry? No. Mary had probably known hunger, truth be told. She's saying that the one that she bears would be the one that could and would fulfill the longing and the yearning of every human heart. Oh, he's not here to provide a plate supper. He's here to fulfill the longing of every human heart. We might eat and be hungry again, but this Jesus literally removes the longing for life. And she knows that the one that she bears will do precisely that. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy. As he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. Oh, I love this. This 14-year-old girl does biblical theology. In her praise, she connects it back to what is true biblically. And Mary remained with her about three months and returned to her home. Conceivably until Elizabeth's son, we know him as John the Baptizer, until he is finally born. Perhaps she helps out with her cousin just a little bit. And then she returns home. I don't know when it was the last time you just bursted out in praise in front of your old cousin. <laughs> Maybe this season is that season. What do we learn from Mary? Since God is with us and God was with Mary, let me give you three summary implications. Fleming Rutledge has said, Advent begins where human potential ends. So that's what we're here to celebrate, commemorate, and contemplate. Since God is with us. One of my favorite Christmas carols, my favorite Christmas songs by Isaac Watts is Joy to the World. I can't hardly sing it. Just can't. But there is that wonderful refrain. Let every heart prepare him room. If you hear that song, when you hear that song, this Advent season, I want you to think of it richly. This is the preparation Sunday of Advent. So let us prepare to make him room. First point goes like this. Prepare for your own depravity. I know that's not a popular notion. Don't care. Prepare for your own depravity. Perhaps the first thing to prepare this Christmas season is an accurate assessment. You heard Mike mention it. You heard Ken mention it. Of our actual life on this earth, the one that no amount of busyness can redeem. Let me say this very directly. Perhaps some of you in this room don't know Jesus. And so let me just say this. Without the incarnation, the coming of Christ, your greatest hope is who you are right now. So you might as well be honest about that. 
Forget all the tracts and the Roman roads and the ABCs. Without the incarnation of Christ and the coming of salvation into our midst, your greatest hope is who you are right now. Spiritually speaking, we all come into this world born into the backwater, the Nazareth, the sticks of sin. And God owes you and me nothing, but by grace, he rescues and he redeems sinners. We say this all the time, but not often enough. We are worse than we think, but God loves us more than we can imagine. He had a reason for choosing to save you and me, but you and I were not that reason. It's just because God is so good. Secondly, prepare for the world's disdain. Prepare for the world's disdain. Joseph suffered all sorts of voluntary indignity. Can you imagine it? Joseph, where, where's Mary again? Oh, yeah, she's uh, down near Jerusalem. Why is that again? Uh, here's the thing. She's with child. She's what now? Yeah, she's with child. But y'all hadn't even been married. Yeah, that's right. It was the Spirit of God, you see. Right, right, sure. But why would he voluntarily enter into that? Because he believed that the Messiah was worth it. Our world, our culture, our society values every other metric of value and worth, and it disdains anyone who refuses to play by that yardstick. But Christ doesn't fit that system. He is how greatness is defined. Charles Spurgeon put it this way. He says, now remember, you will never know the fullness of Christ until you know the emptiness of everything else but Christ. We really are strangers in a strange land, and we will be treated as such. And when we are, may it be because of our love of the Son of God and not some political rant that actually has nothing to do with Advent at all. Perhaps this season is where you get busted by an uncle or a cousin or a spouse or a child or a parent walking in and hearing you go, my God, my God, why have you not forsaken me? generations of my children and my grandchildren will call me blessed because of the gospel. Oh, Aunt Sid, what are you doing here? And you keep the gospel. Thirdly, prepare for the Lord's direction. See, Jesus isn't who we want him to be. 7.2 pound pink baby Jesus was awesome for a time. We don't get to name Jesus. Instead, we offer him to name us. Jesus is who the Bible says he is. Therefore, he is king, and therefore he has authority. His invitation, therefore, is to name you. Just like with Mary, God knows every detail of your life, and he is in the process of making all things new in and through you. doesn't mean that your life will be predictable or safe. It won't, but it is good. In a sense, God is always leading us to Bethlehem all year long, all our lives. God is with us. Now, you might remember that the angel Gabriel comes to Mary and he says, Kyrie, grace, kakaratamine, most favored one. <laughs> that word, kakaratamine, is used only one ever time in the entirety of the Bible. Only one. And it's used by the Apostle Paul to describe a Christian. To describe the one who is in Christ because God has found such 
favor. What's true of Mary in a sense. No, we don't birth the actual Messiah. No. But in a sense, heaven's view of us is that we are kikaratamine. We are most favored ones. In a very real sense, you and I have a manger ministry. (laughs) We are the ones into whom the very spirit of Jesus has been laid in this Bethlehem, this house of bread, so that our spouses, our children, our parents, our extended families, our coworkers, our neighbors, our church members can feast on Jesus. God is with us. Greetings, most favored ones. Let every heart prepare him room. Let's pray. Father, thank you for Jesus. At Christmas this season, Father, I pray that each of us would have the opportunity, the discipline, the desire to be still and quiet and like Mary, consider who you are, what you have done. Maybe we'll even get busted by a relative or a coworker or a stranger. Father, would you, by your Holy Spirit, Give us the zeal and the discernment and the desire to prepare our hearts to make room for the only thing that matters, and that is your son, Jesus. And in so doing, Father, would you bless those around us? That's what this world is desperate for. So, Father, thank you for loving us. We pray all these things in the power of your spirit and in the name of Jesus. Amen.